This weekend, the Football World Cup kicks off in the tiny desert state of Qatar. The winner to organise the 222 FIFA World Cup is Qatar. Ever since it was announced back in 2010 that Qatar had won hosting duties for the 2022 World Cup, controversy has swirled around it like a desert storm. It's hard to get excited about this World Cup because of stuff like this. Nine of the most powerful men in the soccer world stand accused of taking tens of millions of dollars in bribes. There are renewed doubts about the suitability of the Arab state to host the tournament. Allegations of vote buying and human rights abuses have marred the run-up to the competition. Most damaging, however, to the reputation of the Qatar World Cup has been the reported deaths of thousands of migrant workers who have helped build the country's seven new stadiums. In a shocking revelation, reports suggest that more than 6,500 migrant workers from India, Pakistan, Nepal, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka have died in Qatar since it won the right to host the World Cup 10 years ago. In protest, some European cities are refusing to show the matches in public fan zones. Campaigners are also calling for a compensation fund for migrant workers to be set up. Pressure grows from English and Welsh football leaders to ensure compensation for the injured and families of workers who died. I'm Connor Pope and this is in the news from the Irish Times. Today, I talk to football writer and broadcaster Ken Early about the troubling build-up to the Qatar World Cup and what we might expect when the matches start. Ken, can we start with a question that I suspect many people will have wondered to themselves over recent years? In fact, many times people have probably asked the question, and that's why on earth is the World Cup taking place in Qatar? I mean, it must be one of the most unsuitable countries in the world to host a football tournament, given the heat and its size and the complete lack of any kind of footballing infrastructure in the country. And that's leaving aside all the questionable humanitarian positions and political systems, and we can come to that in a minute. But why is it in Qatar? Well, the simple answer is that uh, it's in Qatar because that's the way the FIFA Executive Committee voted when the decision was being made in 2010. I don't think this was the first time these suggestions or this theory had been put about, but uh, certainly it was the first time that Sepp Blatter uh, who was then the president of FIFA, now obviously the disgraced ex-president of FIFA. Qatar! Uh, I was surprised in such a manner that if you go back to, to look at the pictures uh, when I took out uh, the paper Qatar, I was not the same smiling face than uh, when first came out uh, Russia, uh, because Qatar was not definitely my candidate. They knew it. Uh, he gave an interview to Swiss media where he uh, essentially pinned the blame on ex-president Sarkozy of France. Uh, Blatter's account is that uh, it was all set for the World Cup to go, first of all, to Russia and then to the United States in 2022. But what Blatter said this week was what actually happened was that President Sarkozy of France got in touch with Michel Platini, who was uh, at that time the head of UEFA, you know, the European Football Confederation, and said, listen, see what you can do for Qatar. Platini, he, he phoned me uh, directly and said, uh, Seb, listen, uh, because my president asked me, he has not said obliged me, but he asked me that uh, we should consider candidature of, of Qatar because they made a, a big deal together with French uh, uh, industries and uh, Qatari industries, whatever. And why did Sarkozy want 
Qatar to be supported by UEFA? Well, in Blatter's account, uh, because after shortly after the World Cup was awarded to Qatar, thanks to the votes, the four-vote block that Platini secured for uh, Qatar from his other from the other European members of the executive committee. What happened next was that Qatar uh, bought fourteen point six billion dollars worth of uh, fighter jets from France, which oh. obviously would have delighted everybody in the French armaments industry with all of the happy uh, multiplier effects of such investment. Qatar also obviously uh, bought uh, Paris Saint Germain, the, the um, leading team in Paris, uh, which is which they've turned into a into a super club. Um, and they bought the TV rights in France and made various other investments. So France, to get a long story short, did very well out of this. And uh, that was why these uh, these European votes went to Qatar. I mean, that's not the whole story, because obviously there's, that's only four out of 14 votes that went there. And, you know, if you're asking for reasons why people might have seen the uh, astronomically wealthy, uh, scorching desert country of Qatar as a suitable summer host, well, a lot of people are going to say, well, I mean... There was, uh, you know, Qatar bought the World Cup. I mean, this was, this was, I think, admitted in an email by Jerome Valk, who was at the time was the number two to Sepp Blatter. Uh, it's kind of common knowledge. I mean, that's just the way it is. Having said that, they're not the first country to do this. Uh, I okay. Mean, the, 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 the vote went to Russia the, the previous year. <laughs> you know, Russia uh, were asked to assist with the investigation into the you know, allegations of corruption surrounding these results and said, oh, sorry, actually all the computers we use, but they've all been destroyed. Uh, we simply leased those computers. And at the end of it, of course, we threw the computers away. Don't you throw your computers away after you finish doing documents? So that was what that, that was what happened with Russia. But it's not just Russia and Qatar. I mean, if you go back further, the 2006 World Cup in Germany was also bought. Germany has got a very proud history of uh, corruption in, in football. Stretching, you know, back to sort of Adidas's relationship with FIFA, you know, at the end of the 60s and into the 70s. You know, they've they've been the masters in this field for a long time, but now, obviously, the world salutes new masters. Okay. Now, you wrote recently that tournaments tend to be dogged with controversy before they start. I know there were concerns in South Africa about the massive cost of building stadiums when many in that country were absolutely impoverished. And then there was a similar narrative in the run-up to the 2014 World Cup in Brazil. And then, of course, in 2018 in Russia, there was controversy about the illegal annexation of Crimea and state-sanctioned homophobia. And they were just two of the non-footballing issues which occupied minds pre-2018. In 2021, at the Euros, there was the whole taking the knee controversy. So talk to me about the controversies that are occupying minds now as we head towards Qatar. Well, in the first place, there was the corruption surrounding the vote. Then the next thing was the moving of the tournament to winter, because it was, I suppose, always clear that really hosting it in the summer in Qatar, I mean, the Northern Hemisphere is hotter and the, it's hotter at the same time of the year that uh, Ireland is. That that was never really going to fly. That 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 had just been what they had to say at the time to get it over the line. Most of the sort of footballing countries then had to sort of make room in the calendar. You know, pause the season midway in order to sort of accommodate Qatar, who shouldn't be hosting in the first place. Anyway, so I think this created a lot of resentment just on the sort of football side. But the wider story has to do with the, well, a couple of things. First of all, uh, something which was referred to by Blatter almost immediately after the, the vote. I can remember him giving a talk, uh, I think he was in South Africa just a few weeks after Qatar got it, and, and the issue came up of 
you know, LGBT rights. What's your message to uh, gay fans, let's say, who who are thinking about cut their country where homosexuality is illegal? And Blatter kind of joked, and he said, well, I would suggest they do not engage in any sexual activity. And everybody in the room laughed. That's in conflict with FIFA's own mm. sort of code of ethics, you know, their, their own sort of statutes. So there's a kind of a contradiction there. Again, you, you would say, I'm sure... Uh, in in defense of Qatar in this point, you say, well, this isn't the first country that uh, homosexuality has been illegal. I mean, try England in 1966. You, you know what I mean? But I'm not sure if at the time FIFA were, were sort of proclaiming themselves as this sort of uh, having these universalist values. So, so there's that, there's that contradiction and there's that, there's that issue. But I think the biggest story of all really has been to do, has fundamentally is related to the economic structure of Qatar. Um, and the way that the Qatari economy works. Qatar, like other Gulf countries, relies almost entirely on foreign workers. They play a key part of making Qatar's dream to host this World Cup possible, and yet they were governed by this very problematic system. The Qataris don't want to be in a situation where um, lots and lots of people are coming to Qatar and suddenly, well, you know, what's happened to us? Uh, you know, apparently, there's, you know, we're now only a small fraction of our of our own society. And, you know, who, who remembers the Qataris? You know, instead, the system that they have is a, is a very, very tightly controlled uh, immigration system where um, and, and, you know, this is one of the things that's supposedly been been addressed or is in the process of being dismantled. But the, the way that it had been was for, you know, a worker arriving in the country from Nepal, from India, from uh, West Africa people would have to surrender their passports uh, on arrival in the country and were then bound to one particular employer. So they couldn't sort of change jobs and also they obviously couldn't fall out in any way with the authorities who sort of controlled their ability to, to, to come and go in the country, which is someone else is holding your passport. You know, it's at their pleasure, really, what, what you do in that point. And, you know, if you, if you don't have the right to change jobs, then, well, your employer can sort of treat you more or less as they like. So that the system structurally creates abuses. You know, you, you can imagine in that situation, you've got lots and lots of people who have lesser rights and very little money uh, and who need the work. Also, you've got the, the the kind of the, what appears an economic injustice, I think, to, to many people, not necessarily to, to everybody, but of this tremendous wealth coexisting side by side with very low wages. Mm. You know, people are people are coming to Qatar to work for very low wages. Why? Because the wages that are on offer in Nepal are actually even lower. So from their point of view, this you know, they they're improving their situation slightly, but clearly the deal that's on offer for them is is not a fair deal. During the hot season, the degree sometimes goes over 50. It's not easy, my friend. The heat hits you till you feel like you are dying. Every day they promise us to give up the salary and not yet giving the salary. Yeah, it's about a year now, not only me, but all my friends. We try to talk to the company. The company say we'll take us to police. Some of us want to go back to their countries. The life you are living here is hell. It's not as though uh, Qatar is the first country to discover, you know, the market rate for labor, you know, the idea of paying workers as little as possible to do the job that you want them to do. I mean, you know, this is like a... Ah, yeah, but I think it's quite different when they take your passport, they prohibit you from seeking employment elsewhere, and then they're paying you these absolutely tiny 
rates for your, for the job that you're doing? Yeah, and you know, you know the rates are pretty small. I mean, if you, you know, if you think about like maybe when when uh, I'm going to go to the World Cup for the Irish Times uh, and the apartment that we're going to be staying in, myself and Gavin Comiskey, who's also working there with the Irish Times, mm. uh, I think the, the the nightly rate for the apartment is something like three hundred dollars a night, and three hundred dollars a night would be you know, we're, we're getting into monthly wage territory for probably some of the people who are going to be working in the hotel. You see what I mean? So so you've got this kind of massive inequality sort of existing side by side, um, which I think, you know, I can you can understand, I think, why Qataris seek to defend their privileged economic position in their own country. After all, this is the, the same sort of drama of immigration that you see in, in most European countries now. Sure. You know, this this is the same thing, only on a, only on a, in a slightly on a slightly different scale. Since the number of workers, the number of foreign workers, vastly exceeds the actual Qatari population. You know, it's not we're not talking about a sort of a, a percentage of the Qatari population. We're talking about a multiple. You know, so you can see how how they seek to how they are interested in defending that economic privilege. But it does create this this spectacle of this incredibly unequal society. And the big story that sort of has been told about this, as it pertains specifically to the World Cup, this was the the Guardian story, February 2021, when it was published. And essentially, the headline that now is on that article is revealed, uh, colon, six and a half thousand migrant workers have died in Qatar since World Cup awarded. Jesus. But at the bottom of this article, as it currently appears, is a paragraph that says the heading and subheading in this article were amended on the 2nd of March 2021, so about 10 days after the story came out, to clarify that the figure of 6,500 deaths covers the 10 year period since Qatar was awarded the World Cup. The article text was amended on 8th and 18th March 2021 to include further comments from the Qatar government relating to the percentage of expatriates employed in construction and work related deaths in the sector. So you can see that there was big pushback from the Qatari government. Yeah. But the original headline had kind of given the impression that sort of six and a half thousand people had died building these stadiums in the in the sort of oppressive heat uh, driven for for 12 hour days under this uh, blazing sun. This is horrific. I mean, consider that, you know, this is like, is this what we're doing? This is the, the, the stadiums that have been built with, with the blood of these workers. But of course, that impression was misleading. Because what the article is actually saying, I mean, if you can, if you read past the headline, which obviously most people don't, is that this is the number of workers who have died in Qatar since they won the World Cup, which was, which is at that point, uh, almost 11 years previously. So six and a half thousand workers had died you know over an 11 year period obviously if you've if you've got hundreds of thousands or millions of people over an 11 year period some of them are going to die so what i mean is that i i, I would consider that that claim the stadium scam which i hear sort of said to me all the time that is a kind of a that's a disinformational claim but i feel awkward describing it as disinformation because i i sympathize with the overall story of it i do think that that this is a story of injustice and exploitation Coming up, what fans travelling to Qatar should expect and who might take home the 2022 World Cup. We would like to invite everyone to come and to enjoy the football and to enjoy the festivity and the celebration. All what we are asking for, we have our cultural norms. We are respecting everyone and expecting from everyone to respect our laws. But if two men or two women who go to the World Cup, hold hands in a street, 
kiss in the street, what will happen to them? Are, well, are you, you, can well, you give the reassurances that nothing the, will happen? The, actually, the laws doesn't allow display of public affection, whether it's a man and man or a man and woman. Ken, Qatar's own foreign minister is asking fans to respect the country's laws and cultural norms. How are women and people from the LGBTQ community approaching this tournament? I mean, even the Welsh FA has conceded that it couldn't guarantee fans safety. That's a pretty rocky start for any tournament, isn't it? Yeah, um, it is. Uh, Although, when you consider, uh, was it the Welsh Football Association you mentioned? That's right, yeah. You know, can they guarantee anyone's safety? I mean, what's the answer? If If you're asking them, can you guarantee the safety of X, Y... I mean, the answer has to I be suppose. no. You know, I mean, it's a, it's sort of like you're, you're sort of bound to give the most conservative answer to that question. I mean, I don't agree with the way that, that things are in Qatar. Nevertheless, that is the way that things are in Qatar and, and many other countries in the region. Uh, the question, I think, sort of is not so much about, isn't it terrible that Qatar, uh, you know, ha- has these rules in Qatar that people say, well, you know, it's not so long since your rules were pretty much the same. It, it, it comes. It comes back to FIFA. You know what? What is FIFA? What? What does FIFA stand for? They. They seem to want to say, well, we stand for this. We stand for lack of discrimination. We stand for universal access. We stand for blah blah blah. But then say, oh yeah, okay, Qatar. Yeah, you know. <laughs> like, yeah. So so that's 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 really the problem. Yeah, I suppose on a slightly more glib note. Samba. <laughs> like a lot of the World Cup is about fans boozing, going to football matches boozing some more. Like, how is that going to work in a country where alcohol is distinctly frowned upon? Well, it's a joke, you know, I mean, it's obviously, I mean, a beer in Qatar costs 15 euros or something, which is not something anyone who's had to pay for their own drinks in the last 40 years could have voted for. But that's that's <laughs> if that's what you're dealing with, with the FIFA executive committee, you know, these these old guys. It's not as though you have to drink to have a good time. It's perfectly possible to simply... Of course you know, not. No, absolutely. But, you know, in my experience of going to World Cups, drink has been a pretty big part of it uh, for a lot of the supporters. You know, it is something a lot of them like to like to do. To, you well, know, at 15 euros a bottle, that'll soften their cough. So, the, so they're talking about, you know, maybe bringing the prices down. I mean, the prices are so high because of, you know, sin taxes. You know, you're not supposed to drink, obviously. Uh, in normal circumstances, I think, you know, if you go to Qatar to work... You can apply for a permit to enable you to buy alcohol at the, you know, uh, whatever sort of limited licensed premises they have. And then there are certain hotels and restaurants and so on, which uh, are licensed to sell alcohol. And this supposedly is going to be liberalized to a certain extent during the World Cup and race to be seen how that's going to work. Because the fundamental thing when you get back to this is, is like this entire World Cup is happening in Doha, really. Yeah. And and there's what, two and a half million tickets or you know, sixty-four sixty-four matches um with capacities from forty thousand up to, you know, seventy thousand. In theory, millions of people are are going to be descending on this place and probably at least a few hundred thousand of them want to get a drink at any particular uh, on any particular day. And then you can imagine every single licensed premises, which has never before in the history of, of Qatar. Uh, had to deal with this such a such an influx of of uh, thirsty um, people, but you know I suppose it's a it's a different way of doing things. It's not it's not the biggest complaint that the people have about this World Cup. No, absolutely not. There's far more there's far more serious complaints people could make. But it strikes me that we've been talking for a good few minutes now, and we haven't really mentioned football at all. So 
I think it's important that we at least touch on football because that's what the World Cup is all about. So, who are the favourites coming into the tournament? I mean, is it Brazil, Germany, Belgium are the second, uh, ranked number two in the world? I mean, who, who, who are likely to do well? Well, the favourites, uh, one, two, three in order, are Brazil, France, who are the champions, and Argentina. And there is actually a, a thread that links those three teams, which is that in each case, the best player and biggest star is owned by Qatar uh, at PSG. <laughs> they all play for they all play for PSG. Neymar, uh, Kylian Mbappe of France, and Lionel Messi, and Lionel Messi. of Argentina. They're they're you know they own the the three top stars of the World Cup, and I think they really are the three the three headline attractions. And it's just it's it's funny that they both they they all play for the Qatar club team as well in in France, which is crazy. You know the idea that. You know, three of the best players in the world, and including one who's the best player ever to play, are all playing in the French league. Is <laughs> it's just crazy. It's just it's an absolute joke. So, they, so, so Argentina, France, and um, Brazil. Brazil are the three are the three top ranked teams. What about England? What do you reckon? I am not super confident about England's chances of doing well in this tournament. They do have a lot of good players, but they haven't had a good year. They since since the Euros, I mean you say they had a good Euro Euro twenty or twenty twenty one as it as it in fact was. Uh, yeah. although they insisted on calling it twenty twenty ridiculously. But um they got to the final and they went winning up at home in a final. This is it. You've got to win from that point, and they didn't win. I'm not suggesting for a second that I'll be cheering for them just to make that very clear. But I was just interested to see how they do. Another thing that I was interested in, Ken, is that the tournament is taking place early in the traditional football season for the first time ever. So I wonder, will it make a difference? Because the players will arguably be fitter, fresher. They'll be carrying less knocks. Because mm. they've only been playing their seasonal football yeah. for the last 12 weeks or so. Will that make a difference, do you reckon? Well, I think it should help in some ways, but it also hinders in other ways. So the way that it helps is obviously that the players who are playing in Europe uh, in, in winter football seasons, which is to say most of them, will be, in, in theory, at peak fitness. Unless, of course, they're one of the unfortunate players who's got injured. Um, there, is, there isn't any time for, if you, if you get a minor injury now, that's it. You know, you're going to miss a couple of games and there's no, there's no point in bringing you now. We'll bring someone else. So there are some players who have been unlucky in that way and that's that's an unfortunate consequence of this. They should, in theory, be uh, fit and fresh. They're only halfway through their, less than halfway through their regular season. So the, the, the problem that often afflicts World Cups is players, particularly the top players who have gone to the end of competitions and played and mm. all the games arrive and they're exhausted and they can't really perform at their best. I mean, I can think of Lionel Messi and the... 2014 World Cup. Uh, it's actually a bad example because he missed half the season injured. But players sometimes arrive and uh, and it uh, and they disappoint. It doesn't really happen for them, and it's clear that the exertions of a club season has, has drained them a little bit. And so that shouldn't be a factor. That should help to improve the standard. But counterbalancing that is the fact that nobody really has any time to prepare. Um, you know, usually a team that's going to the World Cup goes away and has a couple of weeks. They're at a training camp. They're working every day on what they're going to do. You know, they're developing their tactics, their systems, their ideas. And there's none of that. I mean, there's, there's no time. Yeah. It's literally, it's getting the plane. We're playing, we, you know, we're playing tomorrow. Now, finally, obviously, Ireland aren't in the World Cup, but our closest neighbours, Wales, have qualified. In the absence of an Irish team to support, would they be a good option for us? I mean, we all watch Michael Sheen's stirring speech about support for the Welsh team. When the English 
come knocking on our door. Let's give them some sugar, boys. Let's give them some Welsh sugar. They've always said we're too small, we're too slow, we're too weak, too full of fear. But Amar Oheed, you sons of speed, as they fall around us, we are still here! What do you reckon? Will we cheer for Wales? Uh, well, you can call them Cymru now. <laughs> because that's what uh, I mean. We do the the Welsh. The Welsh FA does have an Irish chief executive at the moment, Noel Mooney. But he, you know, he's 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 kind of gone native. He's he is almost a Welshman now. Uh, but they are they they are actually talking about um, or they intend to, I think, change the official name of the team from Wales to Cymru, uh, which obviously is Wales in Welsh. That's right. That's what they've been calling the team for a while, and they think it's time the world got on board with that. I mean, a couple of countries have, have done this. I mean, Turkey changed its name to Turkey. You know, this is kind of a thing. Maybe it's something that we could look at in this country. There are obviously a lot of candidates for what we should be calling it. Uh, our country, that is. FIFA calls it the Republic of Ireland, which is nowhere in any of our statutes. We do not call it that. But... Um, Maybe it's something for us to consider going forward. As to whether Irish people should support Wales, I don't. I don't think this idea of yours is going to fly, Connor. I just don't <laughs> think there's that much. I just don't feel like Wales are that exciting. But if you do want to support Wales, you can get out there and do so because I was looking at the ticketing uh, system on FIFA there, and the only matches for which tickets were still available on FIFA. Now, obviously, there are tickets available if you if you can find the resale. Outlets. I'm sure it's not that difficult to lay your hands on a World Cup ticket. But in terms of the FIFA central ticketing system, the three matches for which tickets were still available were Wales versus Iran, Wales versus the United States, and the United States versus Iran. So if any of those, if you fancy going to any of those, you can still pick up those tickets. I know you're grand. I think I'll hang on till 2026 in America. But Ken Early, as always, thanks very much for talking to us. That's it for today. This episode of In The News was produced by Suzanne Brennan and Aideen Finnegan. We'll be back on Friday.